Welcome to the OG Advocates Podcast. Hey, everyone. We are back on the OG Advocates Podcast. This is Megan Evans, and I'm here with my friends Katie McHugh and Kyle Bukowski. So last Monday, May 17th, the Supreme Court agreed to hear a case regarding a Mississippi law that would ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. And this is the first major challenge to abortion rights since the conservative shift in the Supreme Court. We are very lucky to have Becca Hart Holder here to talk about this case, how we got here, and what comes next. Becca is the executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Massachusetts and has helped to make huge strides here in Massachusetts to help expand reproductive freedom. Becca is also a lawyer, and prior to leading NARAL in Massachusetts, she served as the federal policy director at the National Abortion Federation and had a legal fellowship with the Center for Reproductive Rights. We are so grateful to have her here to break this down for us. So, Becca, I just want to get started with, tell us about this case. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much um, for having me on. I'm really excited to be talking to the three of you. So um, I think this case, um, this Mississippi case is sort of the case that we've all been waiting for. We knew um, after the confirmation of um, Justice Amy Amy Coney Barrett that um, there would be a watershed um, abortion rights case coming, and this is the first one that the court has agreed to hear. So um, the the state of Mississippi in 2018 um, passed a law that would ban abortion um, at 15 weeks, and it's a direct challenge for uh, uh, on Roe v. Wade because it is um, unconstitutional under Roe v. Wade. And the Center for Reproductive Rights, um, on behalf of the Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, which is the only clinic in the state of Mississippi, filed a lawsuit to block um, block the law. And um, the court uh, agreed to hear it um, last week. So it's never actually been enforced. Um, and I think one of the best ways to understand this challenge is that Mississippi is not going straight at Roe v. Wade. It's not a six-week ban, right? It's not a banning. It's not banning every single abortion. It's sort of an intermediate step that is testing how far the court is willing to go. So it's, you know, banning many abortions, but the, we know the vast majority are happening um, before 15 weeks. But I'm kind of thinking of it as a trial balloon to see what the court will do on Roe and see what future challenges will look like. So for our listeners, could maybe you give us a very brief history of um, what Roe v. Wade actually means in terms of how states can intervene in abortion care and maybe some other kind of landmark cases that have chipped away at that over the past now 30 plus years? Yeah. 40 years. So um, when when Roe was decided um, in the early 1970s, the court basically said that states cannot regulate abortion prior to viability. So that's roughly 23, 24 weeks. And then um, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the court examined some other barriers to abortion care. Um, one was parental consent, the other was spousal consent, um, and found that um, that the you know the court the, the court upheld the right to privacy, but said that you that states could regulate abortion prior to viability, um, but they cannot impose an undue burden 
on the right um, to uh, uh, the right to choose. And the problem for advocates um, has been that the court didn't define what undue burden meant. So Casey was decided in 1992, and it was a it was a really important moment because advocates thought Roe was going to fall in 92, and it doesn't fall. It's 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 a you know it's a major milestone, but. But we st- we don't know what undue burden means, and lawyers, um, reproductive rights lawyers, keep ch- keep challenging laws, and they keep being told that you know, nope, this is not an undue burden, this is not a substantial obstacle in the path of um, of uh, women and pregnant people trying to um, exercise the right to choose, until the decision in Whole Woman's Health in 2015, and that's the first case where we sort of see the court stepping in and saying, no, sorry, the state of Texas has gone too far. They've placed a substantial obstacle in the path of women by saying that abortion providers have to have admitting privileges at hospitals um, within 30 miles of the facility, which would have closed half of all hospital, uh, half of all abortion providers in the state of Texas. Um, and and they've, they also have, uh, they also struck a law that would have said that um, uh, abortion facilities have to be uh, meet the standards of ambulatory surgical centers, I think, which would have closed all but seven or eight um, uh, abortion providers in or, or uh, healthcare providers in Texas. So, so in 2015, it's this kind of amazing watershed moment where we start to think, okay, the undue burden standard means something, right? Like we're starting to understand, you know, if you're closing over half the clinics and you're making it so that people actually cannot schedule an appointment for abortion care if they want it, that burden is too high. Um, So then we get to today um, and I mean, it, you know, it's just, it's it's sort of saying, I, I mean, I fear what the court is going to do is chuck the undue burden standard out the window and just um, allow states to regulate abortion um, after 15 weeks. And, and, and you know, the, the high court could go farther than that. Hopefully they won't, but that's, um, th- th- and that's what we're all afraid of. I am so glad that you made your comment earlier, Becca, about um, sort of this is the moment we've been waiting for. I feel very much that way. Um, I live in a part of the country that would mostly cheer at um, various abortion bans and and different stages um, of abortion bans. So how can we help, especially those of us in places um, that are not protecting the right to abortion in our states. How can we be um, useful to this fight, um, both as OBGYNs, like our listeners, um, and just as regular people, as not non-lawyers, uh, especially non-lawyers from Mississippi? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been getting this question so much since Monday, and I want to provide some kind of, you know, really hopeful answer, and I just don't have one. Um, I, I, I think there are things that we can do, but none of it is the cure-all that we that we all want. Um, I think that the action on abortion rights um, and reproductive freedom more broadly is in the states. I think that the most important thing people can be doing right now is investing in state legislative races, gubernatorial races, AG races, and obviously state senate races. Uh, 
federal Senate races. It's critically important that we have legislatures that are friendly um, to uh, reproductive rights. And obviously that's harder in states like yours, Katie, um, and I don't want to pretend that that's an easy path, but I think that for too long um, our side has neglected um, investing in um, local and state politics in a really meaningful way. That's a long game. I mean, that's going to take a long time to flip um, to, to flip anti-choice seats, but I think that's where we have to go because it's it's really the states that are going to be regulating it. And then I think the other obvious one is the United States Senate. I mean, we are holding on to a pro-choice majority by a thread right now. We have a really scary um, uh, election coming up in 2022, which could flip the balance of the Senate and do real harm um, on our ability to block anti-choice judges. So um, I really think it is investing um you know, getting involved, getting to know your local politicians, getting to know what they think about choice. Are they willing to stand up for it? It is broadly, you know, reproductive freedom is broadly popular in the United States and um, and really investing in the kind of um, on the ground infrastructure that we need to have pro-choice majorities in legislatures across the country. That's so important, right? That the majority of Americans support, in most cases, a uh, person's right to have an abortion. And, you know, Katie, you said, like, in my state, they would cheer. But when we say they, we're really talking about a legislature that does not actually represent the popular majority opinion. And so that's so important. I just want to reassure everybody that this is not like we're fighting against the will of the people. We're fighting against, unfortunately, the elected officials who don't have uteruses and, um, you know, don't know what it means to be pregnant. Yeah, and I think it will. I mean, obviously, I don't want the Mississippi ban to be upheld. I think it will be a crisis, um, but it will also galvanize pro-choice people. Um, and, you know, I think this is, if there's any silver lining, and it's really hard to see one right now, it is that, but it galvanizes us at the expense of real people losing meaningful choices about, you know, if, when, and how to become a parent. So, um, I, you know, I I, I am, I am hopeful that people mobilize um, if if the case goes the wrong way. But it it's a it's a scary prospect. Yeah, it is interesting timing because it you know we're the even though it feels like we just had an election, the midterms are upon us, and so just thinking about what that could mean for the political landscape. And I wonder if you could just briefly talk about, you know, what the court looked like when they were looking at whole women's health versus what the court looks like now, because it's a huge shift. And I think that maybe not everyone realizes how much it's changed since that case was heard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've lost, um, and by we, I mean, pro-choice um, activists have lost, um, you know, essentially three votes. Um, and I think the the most shocking um, is, you know, after the passing of Justice Ginsburg, having her um, seat be replaced by um, Amy Coney Barrett, who is, um, I mean, just one of the most anti-choice um, judges and jurists um, that I can think of. But, you know, um, Neil Gorsuch, when appointed, um, was an ardent um, anti-choice uh, judge, no two ways about it. Um, I think 
the fact that he uh, got that seat when um, I think a lot of us think it was rightfully uh, should have gone to Merrick Garland was a was a serious loss. And then um, after the election of President Trump, you know, you just kind of knew what was coming down um, the pike after Gorsuch. You know, Kavanaugh was a was it was payback, honestly, for for I think for the evangelical vote for the voters who were single issue who wanted anti choice um, justices on the high court and who wanted justices who were not going to be afraid to um, to tackle. Um, to tackle Roe v. Wade and kind of, you know, force a shift in the culture. The other interesting thing about this, though, um, Becca, is that 15 weeks is a completely arbitrary number, that there's nothing special about 15 weeks, that past 15 weeks, the the pregnancy means more or is worth more or is worth less or anything like that, um, or before 15 weeks, the uh pregnancy is is more easily terminated or anything like that there's there's no significance medically speaking to 15 weeks um so when you talk about how this is sort of a trial balloon that, that's testing the waters um i think that medically as well how far will physicians allow legislators to impinge on our ability to make medical decisions um, when the, legislature, the, the legislators have no medical knowledge and are just blindly choosing an arbitrary uh, point just to test things out. And as you very clearly said, it causes real harm for them to test things out. Uh, real people with real lives and real problems have very real harm as a result of it. Yeah, I th- I think, you know, if I had to step into the shoes of a anti-choice um, Mississippi legislator, which I'd rather not do, um, I think what they're trying to do is say to the court, listen, this is reasonable because the vast majority of abortions occur before 15 weeks. So we're not actually stopping that many people. And if somebody um, needs or wants abortion care, they should be able to get it before 15 weeks without realizing any of the real world obstacles that people face, the financial obstacles, the, you know, the fact that there's only one clinic in Mississippi and how difficult it can be to schedule to get abortion care there. Um, they, they just, they're just not, that logic doesn't comport with the real lived experience of people trying to get abortion care. Yeah. And I, I think the reality is, is that if this were to go into effect, you know, you would see it go into effect in not just Mississippi, but likely other states. And we know, you know, especially those of us who have worked in this field, that women with means or birthing people with means will always be able to get their abortion. They will always be able to travel. They will always be able to go somewhere, another state that provides abortion without those restrictions. It is women who you know, are low income, who are English is not their first language, who have so many other barriers in place to even get to that first appointment. And they may not know their gestational age and they may find themselves at 15 weeks and then unable to get that abortion. So this always disproportionately impacts low income people, people of color, um, people who are not originally from this country. And and I mean, that's always the case in, in these bills is that, you know, if a legislator, one of these legislators daughter needs an abortion, she will get it because they have means. And this is, you know, the tragedy of these pieces of legislation. 
Well, and, and Megan, let's not forget fake women's health centers, right? That, you know, there also is this plan to try to trick people who want abortion care into going to a clinic um, that is not a real medical center, that is not licensed by the state, but is trying to deceive people about the safety of abortion care, including lying to them about their gestational age. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's, it, it, it's all those barriers plus the barrier of, you know, the fake women's health center across the street from a legitimate abortion provider that's that's deceiving people and i think it's it it's just it's horrifying what people have to go to to get basic health care and this is just gonna exacerbate it and just so we're clear there is no reason that the supreme court should even be entertaining this case if there is not a reason why they're going to change the precedent is that correct yeah, in the legal wor- world, we call this a facially invalid case, which means that under existing precedent, there is no question, but that on its face, this law is unconstitutional and should be struck. There is no reason to consider this case unless you are looking to gut or overturn Roe. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the two lower courts already said this was unconstitutional and and struck it down. Yeah. And that's in the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative circuits and most friendly to anti-abortion um, uh, regulations and laws. So that the Fifth Circuit said this is unconstitutional is, um, and the Supreme Court still took the case is, is pretty stunning. And this is the same circuit who said, you know, yeah, Whole Woman's Health was in Texas, but, you know, Arkansas, Mississippi's laws uh, are actually are look exactly the same, but they haven't been tested in Arkansas or Mississippi, right? And so they upheld those laws in those states, right? And the same um, the same circuit that said that Louisiana's law, which was a mirror of the Texas law that was struck down, um, you know, could um, could go forward until the Supreme Court intervened. So I think it, it you know, for those of for those of us who are lawyers, um, it's just it's stunning that come you know the the court would take this case when the Fifth Circuit ruled the way that it did. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, God. <laughs> um, God, I can't tell you how much I want to be wrong about what I think is going to happen. Um, I think that the court will find the law constitutional. I think the question is how far the court goes. Um does the court stop at 15 weeks um, and allow abortion care prior to 15 weeks? Or does the court go further and give states the ability um, to regulate, um, you know, from, you know, zero to, to 14 weeks? I think the, the other thing that I really feel um is that, you know, if Roe falls, there are 24 states that we know will um, either automatically ban or move to very quickly ban abortion care. But the anti-choice advocates do not have a 24-state strategy. They have a 50-state strategy. They are they are coming for the rest of us. And I, you know, even though we've done some really important work to shore up um, the right to choose in Massachusetts, um, in my home state, we cannot rest on our laurels. First of all, we are going to have of people traveling urgently to states where abortion care is safe. And second, we are going to have to fend off 
all kinds of attacks um, from at the state and um, national level that try to attack the right to choose in um, in in states where we think of it as protected. And what I worry about, what keeps me up at night, are um, national fetal personhood laws um, that would, in fact, outlaw abortion in all 50 states. Now that's looking years and years down the road, but I mean, I feel like that's what I've been doing my entire career and saying, I'm pretty afraid of what's coming down the pike and here we are. And so I'm starting to look at the next thing. What's the timeline for hearing and arguing this case and when we could expect a decision? Yeah, the court hasn't announced yet, or at least not as of um, when I last checked today, hasn't announced when oral arguments can be. We, we can expect them anytime um, in the fall. Um, and more likely than not, the court will decide um, by June of next year. So what are, what are our options moving forward for ensuring broad access to comprehensive reproductive health, including abortion care in the United States, if it's if it's not through the Supreme Court and if Roe is not a guarantee? Yeah, well, so like I said earlier, I think it's really working in the states. Um, I, you know, and, and shoring up laws in the states because I do think women and pregnant people are going to travel um, to states where, um, where they can access abortion care. I also think there's going to be a huge, I hope there's going to be a huge expansion of telehealth um, abortion and an increase in access to medication abortion so that um, folks are able to access um, abortion care even in states where um, where the legislature has made it very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think what always frustrates me is that if you make it so hard for someone to access abortion care, you think that you value that pregnancy and that you value um, the outcome of that pregnancy, a child, and that you invest in healthcare and you invest in education and you invest in, you know, all the reproductive justice things that we care about. And we know that are important, but that is also not the case. And in the states, especially that are vying to be the most restrictive when it comes to abortion access, also have the highest maternal mortality rates and also have the highest infant mortality rates and also have the worst health outcomes as far as like diabetes and heart attacks and obesity. And, and so, you know, those, it's just so hard to wrap I think all of our heads around this, making it so restrictive, but then not caring at all about the outcomes of these pregnancies that you're essentially forcing to come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, I think the big tell for me is that, um, you know, we can't come together with anti-choice advocates to fight for paid family medical leave or we can't come together to fight for universal access to pre-K. You would think that those would be things that we could all agree on. The tell is they don't support those things because it's actually about controlling bodies. It's actually about controlling who you have sex with. It's actually about controlling um, if you have a family, when you have a family, who is worthy of having a family. Um, and I, and I just, I, I think we just, we have to keep that front and center that it's, you know, the the logical thing would that would be that we would all be fighting for Medicaid expansion together because it would mean there would be more prenatal care for people. But 
the same people who are often fighting for anti-choice restrictions are fighting against Medicaid expansion in many states. So it's it's never been about, you know, the 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 health and well-being of the pregnant person. It has always been about misogyny and control. Yes. Well, that's a mic drop if I've ever heard one. <laughs> I agree. And you know, Becca, tell us what NARAL is working on. I know you're obviously working at the state level, but nationally, what's NARAL been working on? Yeah, NARAL um, obviously has, the national organization has invested hugely in um, elections and in trying to make sure that pro-choice um, senators are elected and pro-choice um, congresspeople are elected. And I think really doing some absolutely incredible education about how you run on a pro-choice platform and how you persuade people, um, how you talk about um, access to abortion and reproductive health care um, in areas of the country that I think it's kind of easy to think um, is hostile to those issues and, you know, really um, running people who can make a difference um, in their communities when they get to Washington, D.C. So that has been a huge focus of, of the national organization and I know will be a huge focus in, in 2022 as well. I also want to remind our listeners that while you know, the vast majority of OBGYNs are deeply committed to access to comprehensive reproductive health care. It's also important to remind our colleagues, right, that they have an invested interest and they should have a concern when, you know, governmental bodies are legislating how we practice medicine. That should concern everyone. Uh, criminalizing medical providers for providing health care should concern all medical providers. And so making sure that you're, you know, really trying to engage your colleagues who work in other specialties to be concerned about this, because this will affect their work. Women and people who can get pregnant will die if they do not have access to abortion care. And that will affect their hospitals and their clinics and the health of their communities. And so I think sometimes uh, other specialties feel like they can wash their hands of this because they don't directly do uh, you know, pregnancy care but it will affect them and it should be horrifying to all of them. I mean, this is hard work and it can really take it out of you. So what do you do to have that balance and to stay committed to this fight? We all know on this podcast that this is a long game. It is not a short one. So what, how do you kind of take care of yourself yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I'm the paragon of uh, self care, so don't let me hold myself up that way. But I will say, um, I have two little kids, um, and when I leave this pandemic office and go downstairs, I am with them. I am fully with them. I am fully present with them, um, and I and I, you know, I work really hard to keep those boundaries clear. It is difficult, but I do it. Um, I also, pandemic silver lining, have um, <laughs> like a month into the pandemic, I was like, this heart palpitation doesn't feel normal. Um, and I don't really want to go to the ER right now. So I'm going to start exercising and meditating. And um, that has been transformative for me um, to just get my mind off of, um, you know, everything that's that's going on in the world, because it can just be it can just be too much. Um, and then, um, you know, I don't watch 
anything about reproductive health rights or justice in popular media. Like I do it all day long for work. And then I draw the line um, at home because it just feels like too much of my um, professional life bleeding into my personal life. So that actually is a a strong self-care rule that I have. Do you have any advice for ways that physicians can become involved in NARAL's work or in policy work if it's not necessarily something they've been officially trained in? Yeah, I can't stress how critically important clinicians are um, to the kind of work that um, that reproductive health rights and justice advocates do. So an example um, from my own work is when we were working to expand um, access for young people because Massachusetts had a very onerous parental consent law that we repealed. We brought in um, uh, physicians and advanced practice clinicians to talk one-on-one with legislators, not in big groups, not in a way that was confrontational, but to say, look, you have questions. You need to, you, you need to be in a safe that's a, a, a place that's safe to answer those questions. Um, and this is a person that I really trust who can help you do that. And many of those conversations were really transformative for a lot of legislators. Testifying, writing op-eds, all of that is vitally important. But I, I do think that that one-on-one conversation where you can ask a question that you're afraid to ask in public um, is really key. So, um, you know, I know Megan is on the board um, of our local Planned Parenthood. I have a couple of wonderful clinicians on my board um, at NARAL. Um, We just have like a a ever-growing kind of clinician community that we call on all the time. So I would say if you're interested in doing it, just you know, ask a friend who you've seen doing it, who do they trust in the movement or send me an email. Like I've been doing this work for 15 years. I know people all over the country. I can easily hook you up. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. I think that, you know, we talk about this on the podcast and then just in a lot of our work um, individually, but that our voice is so critical. And I think people think as clinicians, like, you know, is my email really matter? Does my phone call really matter? But it does. It does because we are the people who are taking care of the patients and who are actually practicing medicine. And like Kyle said, don't tell me how to practice medicine because you're not a clinician. And I am happy to talk with you about what this legislation what it will do to us in practice and how it will impact not only how we practice medicine, but how our patients access care. And we can never overstate the importance of that. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a funny story, which is that when I was in labor, I had like a 40 hour labor. It was not very fun. And, um, I think like 24, 25 hours in, one of the midwives came in and she was like, so how do I get involved in your work? And I was like, not now. No, thank you. Can you call me later? (laughs) I don't want to have this conversation right now. (laughs) Did you really say it like that? No, thank you. (laughs) I was like, no, I can't right now. I was like, like, in a moment when my- Did you get this baby out in the next two hours? (laughs) Seriously. Megan, I do love what well, you were saying about the um, the importance of physicians being involved and how 
I I always talk to to folks about how we not only um, see and treat our patients, but we can also represent our patients to legislators. So when we bring patient stories, we bring the experiences that we have and we share with patients. Um, and so it makes our voice as physicians ever more powerful because we're not just coming as ourselves. We're bringing with us our whole patient population and our panels and our uh, experiences with us into that room with the legislators. Um, and I think that that helps them to hear us more because we live that, we live that um, duality. We walk that line between we represent ourselves and our own interests, but we also represent our patients and our patients' experiences. Becca, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this case. It's, um, you know, certainly something like you said, we've all been expecting, but it it's so much more real now that it's headed to the Supreme Court and there's real implications for, you know, what the outcome of this case could be. Um, so thank you again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard, feel free to review our podcast. And special shout out to OBGYN resident Dr. Evie Adams for creating our cover art. All right, see you next time.